Hooray, hurrah, the smartest men in the world Proofcast takes to the ether this time from the salubrious confines of Paris' most enchanting uh, bibliographic conflagration via Shakespeare and Company located conveniently on a rue in a Seine. This is where you cheer. A little more enthusiasm, book people. <laughs> Once again, we join hands and join hearts and try to find some solace during this holiday season when there seems to be so much trouble in the world and yet so much joy to be had from one another because, as Lord Buckley said, people are the garden and it's our time to walk amongst you. And I want to make everyone extra embarrassed because Jennifer and I are so overly excited to be back in Paris after three years that I'm listening to Wham! only. And I insist on singing someone special every single time. Uh, The plot of the Wham! video of uh, this Christmas is one of the most touching Christmas stories of all. Originally put forth by one of the Russian writers, I can't remember which one, I think it was Portnoy. It's the story of a, of a gay man who's in a singing duo who goes to a ski lodge for a weekend, but somehow is in love with a woman. It's confusing, there's sweaters, the countryside is stunning, and he vows, this year, I'm going to spend it with someone special. It's a, it's a song that raises more questions than it answers. And it's a carol that begs itself because one says, you don't really hear carolers singing it more than they should. <laughs> Frankly overlooked in my opinion, in, my, in this Grinch's estimation, figgy pudding needs to go and we need to get back to the sweaters and the bisexual jams at Christmas. I'm all for Whoville, but let's get off the gender labeling for a second and just get to what's what. The honest emotion of being a rich person in the countryside. (laughs) So we haven't been able to go to the country of Europe or the city of France or Paris and the county of England in three years because of that... Nasty plague. Now, if you're listening in America and you live in Florida, cheers, everybody. If you're listening in America or uh, one of the outlying provinces, it's likely you haven't heard of it. It was called COVID, and it was a hassle for about two weeks. Um, I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't get a haircut. I stormed the capital of Wisconsin a couple of times. I also rode around the Capitol when my guy lost, and I wore a mankini and a Viking hat. Because I love freedom, GD, and that's what Christmas is all about. We're staying in a hotel in Paris here that's very famous. And, um, in fact, it's so famous, it's just called The Hotel. And um, as if it invented it. And it doesn't even mean the same thing in Paris. In France, there's a different word for everything, and that's what makes it remarkable. They use a whole nother language. And um, uh, hotel means place where army people lived in the olden days. And uh, maison isn't at all where you get fruit. It's very confusing at first. And then you get in the swing of it. Um, they have hospitals that aren't hospitals. Um, they're hôpitals. And uh, they're, they're not that 
uh, I went there and I didn't feel well and they turned me away. But this year, I'm going to spend it with someone special. In any case, uh, we checked in and France is the most sophisticated city in all of Europe. And um, we check in and the guy behind the desk is wearing the ugliest Christmas sweater of all time. And then the guy who comes to take your luggage, who in France is known as Le Bel Boy, uh, he uh, he also was wearing an ugly Christmas sweater. And then today we went down to talk to Luis, who's one of our friends who works at the desk there, who we didn't know was still there because, as you know, after three years with your life this unsettled and uh, uh, everything up in the air and uh, the changes that happened and no one could work and all that jazz, you're never sure if you haven't been back somewhere in three years that the same people are going to be there. And some of them that are there um, have changed and they have rifles and whatnot. You know, you never know. that This happens. Um, I've known comedians who I've known for 20, 30 years in the States, and uh, as soon as they were able to uh, put Hillary in a box and uh, get that COVID underway, they changed. They, they, they weren't embracing the jokes like they used to. You know what I mean? They, uh, the, the humor took a back seat, and uh, I'm never, I'm never going to let that happen, and I'm never going to give you up. Uh, and I'm never going to let you down, and I'm never going to run around, and I will never desert you. Um, however, I will order dessert, and today... To prove that the French aren't anything that they have a reputation for. The reputation, it's unlike the Belgians who the reputation I think is quite earned. Um, and a lot of Americans are like, what's their reputation? Um, ecstasy. What's your destination next to me? Um, Been here! Um, the Belgians' reputation is mussels and fries. And what's wrong with that? And just clap your hands. And then, um, and Magritte. And then um, some other fictional characters that weren't written by Belgian people but are set in Belgium. Like Agatha Christie wrote um, uh, a book um, about... um, Kenneth Branagh played him in the movie. It was a new version of Hercule Poirot. In this version, he doesn't have lips. And in all the previous versions with Albert Finney and Tony Randall and Hercule Poirot or, or David Suchet was always played by a very sexy actor that had a lot of charisma and they decided to go another way with it uh, on the Kenneth Branagh thing and have him be like what if your English acting teacher was there wearing a mustache for two hours and you're like well what are you doing and he's like I am from another country and you're like I ordered the mool frites a half an hour ago I'm dying here. And where's the beer or creek or whatever you people fucking insist on calling it? So I didn't see that version of Murder on the Orient Express. Instead, I killed myself briefly in order to unendure the pain of having to go see Murder on the Orient Express. I think it was an aptly named movie because if I had seen it, I might have murdered someone and I wouldn't have waited for the Orient Express. I would have taken the local. In sound, never mind. So uh, we're at the restaurant today, which wasn't called Le Restaurant, although it would have been awesome. It was, however, called fantastically Le Bistro, which gives you a good idea where the food's going to head. Um, there's going to be steaks and frites and whatnot. And Americans get real sketchy in Paris. They're like, oh, God, can you do this and can you do that? Yeah, and you can smoke weed. I'm just doing it. So, <laughs> but is it legal? Fuck you. Who cares? That's what's wrong with your life. Stop asking. Start reaching for the stars and wearing glasses that make little presents out of the lights that you see and shit. And so we went to Le Bistro and I got Le Steak and whatnot. Actually, I didn't. I got Beef Bourguignon, which is easy for Americans to order because we've heard of it. And uh, 
and French fries. And uh, uh, which, by the way, on the website, the French fries at this bistro were advertised as label fries, which I'm, I'm sketchy on French. I think it means the beautiful fries. And then when we got there, they weren't on the menu at all. And then they appeared at the table. So I felt they were not only beautiful, but magic in their own special way. And uh, the waiter was very, very hilarious. And he did hilarious takes, which I think you'll find. Uh, a lot of French writers will do. When you come from another country, the English people have this natural inferiority thing about France because they know it's so close and yet the flavor is kept but a channel away. <laughs> they can take a two and a half hour train ride and be in a place where everything's delicious or they can stay, um, you know, in Exeter <laughs> or Swindon or whatever and, and look at the, uh, the uh, carrier bags blow up against the railings. <laughs> And stand in front of the William Hill and watch sad people cry. England has so many choices at Christmas, it's not even funny. And with Brexit, it's awesome because they what they did was, first they built the channel to keep Europe at arm's length, and then Brexit was to keep England away from being fun ever again. So no one will ever go there that wants to have fun. And they don't elect prime ministers anymore. They spent the entire last year appointing their friends. Which is this whole new type of government that I don't even remember the Romans doing. I don't remember the Frati e Frati government or whatever. Well, it's like, well, you know my friend Bill, he's super rich. Well, he could do it now. We're, what happened to the last person? She got bored. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, we're here, and, the, and he was very, he did all these French takes. He, that one, which I love, that. Uh, when French people pull their entire side of their face to the left side, it's always hilarious. And it's always funny. Um, but the English people are convinced that um, England has, you know, got a lock on some things, you know, like the, the Macintosh or whatever. And, uh, you know, Range Rovers in the old days or something. Then you get to France and you're like, fuck, everything works. People are laughing. They're kissing and they're not related, so it's different. <laughs> they're kissing with enthusiasm, so it's not like England at all. And with the potential for dating, which again makes it not like England. Where people don't get married, they partner up. God, that's romantic. I want to go into business with someone and later we'll see if we should be inside each other. So... He was delightful, and then dessert, it was dessert time, as it so often happens after uh, the first course, and uh, uh, he brought us, uh, we ordered a creme brulee, which for our American friends uh, means in French, the brulee made of creme, and it was quite big, it was large, it was, you could skate on it, and uh, I said, oh, I wanted a big one, and uh, you know, you wouldn't think that these classic jokes would work in France the way they do. <laughs> But he gave me this big spiel. Oh, do you want one? Do you want two? you want three? And he did it in English as well, by the way. His jokes were in English. Mine weren't in French. I didn't say, ooh, this one is très petit. Je expected grand or whatever. I, he, uh, he brought us a lemon tart. Uh, uh, and that's so that we got an extra dessert. So all I'm saying is bring your A game. Or uh, bring your game ah. Bring your jam ah when you're here. Because you need it. The thing about Paris is people expect you to have a personality, and that's the difference. In England, it's really not required to have a personality. You can walk into a place and go, and then they'll go, 
and then they'll look at you and then you look at them and there's this horrible moment where they're like oh you're not going to talk to me are you and you're like you own this place this is where you say hi and we exchange pleasantries yes but I don't want you to have a nice day and I'm not pleased to meet you I, I know but that's just subtext you're just supposed to say it and then we glide in with the social lubricity, right? I don't care that you don't like me. I know you're unhappy. You live here. If you weren't unhappy, you wouldn't be in, <laughs> you wouldn't be in fucking acting giving me attitude at the fucking chip shop. So, uh, but they don't. And then they're like, because uh, I walk into England, you know, hi, how are you today? And they'll be like, why are you talking to me? And I'm like, because you have a uniform on and a hat. And that's funny. Uh, and in Paris, of course, if you don't say bonjour, if you just breeze in and just go mm, crawl to the corner, they're like, bonjour. Hello, over here. Hundred years war. Joan of Arc and shit. And I've said it before, I'll say it ever so briefly. You have to sing when you're here. You can't sing in England. You can sing, but it's usually, you know, like, um, sweet dreams are made of these. That's how you should open any conversation in England. But here you have to sing. Um, when you walk in, you go, butcher. And then when you leave, you go, au revoir. And they go, au revoir. <laughs> Nobody just says au revoir. I've never had anyone go, bonjour, to me. They really do sing like in the fucking movie with Fred Astaire and shit. It's Funny Faces, the movie I'm talking about. No one's seen it, it doesn't matter. I'll reenact a good deal of it for you right now. <laughs> the plot of the movie is simple. Um, they're looking for a new ad campaign to sell shit in, uh, for like a Vogue magazine in New York. And uh, Kay Thompson, who was a famous lesbian of the theater, plays Diana Vreeland in the movie. And then they hire Fred Astaire, who's uh, I think supposed to be Richard Avedon. And... They're looking for a new face for their magazine. And they happen to go to one of those dreary, what used to be, bookstores in New York, a, a lefty bookstore um, downtown. And Audrey Hepburn happens to be working there. And, this is the plot of the movie, isn't aware that she's Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> so they're like, well, we'd like to... And then one of them, oh my God, she's good looking. We should take her and make her the model. And Audrey Hepburn's like, leave me alone. What is this, Lipstick? Um, and it's so, funnily enough, when you take the black sweater off her and put a fucking hairdo on her, she's Audrey Hepburn. Who knew? So they go to Paris immediately, and then because it's a Hollywood movie, she falls in love with a guy who's 40 fucking years older than her. So it's super creepy the whole time. And, uh, and it's Fetistare, so it's kind of neutral. I think that's ho Hollywood's neutral move. If it was Gary Cooper, you're like, oh, she's going to shag him. Because in all the movies where he's too old, you're like, no, you have to shag Gary Cooper. But with Fred Astaire, it's like, well, maybe they'll just drink. <laughs> but then there's a number in the picture when they come to Paris. And they all go in different directions. And she goes to Montmartre to um, uh, meet with uh, the existentialist people. This is the, It's a movie. <laughs> so she goes, and they let Audrey Hepburn sing. Like, she didn't get to sing in My Fair Lady. And she didn't get to sing in... Mary Poppins, because she wasn't in it. <laughs> and uh, she didn't get to sing in... Um, what's the other one she wanted to sing in? Oh, she sings in um, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's her singing. She sings Moon River, and that's why Henry Mancini wrote the song with four notes, because it goes, Moon River, wider than... And, like, no song ever. 
You dream maker, you heartbreaker. Is it going to go any higher? Wherever you're going, I'm going back down the scale. <laughs> and, yeah, two drifters, and it will go back down. Um, she thought she could sing, which I love about Audrey Hepburn. She was a lovely person, I'm certain, and she was a fantastic uh, screen star. She wanted to sing My Fair Lady, and it was like, mm, that's a hard one. She got to really be able to fucking sing for that one. And then, so in this movie, they let her sing. So Fred Astaire sings in that little reedy voice that he was like, for, I don't know why, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, the great white dance stars of all time that are two of America's great musical comedy film stars, from the era, as I've so often said, Hollywood from the 30s to the 50s had one mission, and that was to show you that the entirety of American history was Scottish-Irish. So everyone is Scottish-Irish in every movie all the time, and they're always named McGee or Scotty. Sit down. And that was a joke. Come in. Oh, hi, Devin. And, um, right, he's got his jam-jams and his pandas. Um, we have children on the show now, ladies and gentlemen. Will you say hi at least? You can, you'll be heard. Hi. Okay, I think you heard him say that. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, Audrey Hepburn sings and she goes, um, uh, what is it? I want to see the den of thinking men down in Montmartre. I will philosophize with all the guys like Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> and this is the best line in the whole movie. And my penis. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Uh, in any case, she dances in the movie and she sings and it's exciting. And so every time Jennifer and I are here, we sing all the songs from the movie, of course, because it's about Paris and whatnot. And Paris has so... Oh, you can hear it now. It's not a felony taking place. By the way, I want you to know that this show was scheduled meticulously by the minds here at Shakespeare and Company and uh, Jennifer, who books the show. Um, this is not just an important night uh, in France. This is probably the most important night of the year that's happened in France. We're in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and in about 35 minutes, Morocco faces off against France for the most important game of all time. Uh, followed by next Sunday, which is the second most important game of all time. And we'll determine whether uh, um, Morocco wins. Uh, I think, what were the odds, David? Gabriel. Gabriel. Who's calling him David? Stop it. <laughs> Gabriel, you told me of the odds before the game that, that uh, what was it, Morocco over France or France over Morocco? 68% France wins. Oh, 68% France? I'd say that's about right. What isn't this the final finals? No, the semis. Yeah, they, the, but the last game they play is the what did I call it? The quarters. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hello. Hey, yeah, I'm sorry you're here for this, Gabriel. Everyone, climb off my dick. All right. This is Christmas. Did the, I spent five minutes talking about the lesson that Wham taught us, and it's been forgotten like it was nothing. I sang like Audrey Hepburn just to amuse you, and I get nothing for this. Quarter, semis, who gives a GD? You get the idea. First of all, they had it in what Americans call cutter. I'm not kidding. The, the military of America calls Qatar cutter. 
I've been to, uh, with the military in the USO, uh, which is a, a charitable organization that entertains the troops. If you think sending improv groups to the Middle East is charitable, that I think can be debated and is best left for the Hague to decide whether or not sending an improv group to a group of people with their life on the line is either funny and or appropriate in any way. But I have been there and we went to... Oh, I have another one. These are the Santa ones. Um, these ones are really good. Yep, here, Gabriel. Have a look at those. Those are the Santa ones. I had a pair in my pocket. These are the glasses that make uh, that make lights look like different things. They're really good. Uh, and I was in the Middle East, and the, and the and the United States military calls the Middle East what we call the Middle East. Of course, as Gil Scott Heron once said, I remember when Egypt was in Africa, and then they moved it to the Middle East. Um, but uh, we were in um, Oman and uh, Saudi Arabia and whatnot. Um, and another country, what was the other bloody? And they kept calling it Central Asia. And I was like, I don't, I think you'll, thank you, you found it. Thank you, my eyesight's so bad I couldn't see a bright green towel on the ground. Which means I could have refereed the last match England was in. Hello, everybody. Hello. Oh my God, did the English whine about the umpire. And then lost it on penalties. That's what's just pathetic. It's one thing to whine about the refing. And though the ref's being unfair, he's Brazilian and he wants the other team to win. Well, one, yeah. Uh, when America is in the World Cup finals, that would be the women. We're never in with the men. When the women are in the American World Cup, uh, in the World Cup finals, nobody roots for us because we're America. Why would you root for us? It's like rooting for Chevron or something. <laughs> It's like rooting for BP. You're like, oh, God, what if they lose? Gee. Um, but I guarantee you, and it's sad but true, no one's rooting for England either, except for England. Not even Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland is rooting for England. And when England goes out, they'll show on the news in England people in Scotland in a pub or Wales in a pub watching England lose, sitting like this. Mm, that's it. They're not even howling or being horrible. They're just smirking. And then after the match is over, they'll interview them. I oh, great match that. <laughs> oh no, no great diamond match that. Eh? Oh no, I can watch that one again. Eh? Aye. They don't even care that they're not in it as long as England doesn't go. And that's how a lot of the world feels. I know that's how they feel about America. So <laughs> now we're down to France, Morocco. This match happens tonight. So everything's calm and quiet, as they say. Uh, what's that horrible song? Silent Night. Gabriel, it's not horrible. I'm sure it's instructive. Over the years, you'll grow to hate several Christmas carols. I hate your nine. This is the time to discuss this. Some will only gain with you. Like Eventually, you'll be like, that Mariah Carey song is off the hook. And you'll never not want to hear it. Or the Jack Jones one. Or the, uh, what is it? The Andy Williams one. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Much mistletoeing. You'll puzzle on that till you're my age, I, I guess. Another 50 years of going, what's much mistletoeing? And then, oh, it's kissing. Eventually at 50, you figure it out. Oh, they're under the thing, snogging. So, um, but it's important to know now that Jingle Bell Rock's not going to be that great in about 30 years. You're going to burn out on Jingle Bell Rock. And they're not going to stop playing it either. It doesn't matter if there's no more computers or phones. 
if there's just like wetware that's embedded in your head and some sort of virus when you're born or they put a mesh in your skull or whatever, and then you just dip into the global uvulating mess or whatever and catch the mix wherever you are, it'll still be the same. Even at that instance, they'll have collated it and triangulated it. It won't even be Spotify then. It'll be so far past icky white dudes that it'll be like the, you know, the Belgian collective of French fried people who deny you. And at that point, it'll just be a DJ going like, and then you'll be like, oh, not that one again. You, they won't even play the whole song anymore. At that point, it'll just be, oh, no, no. And then you just, you've had enough. You'll have had the full song experience without actually having to listen to the full song. But there's a lot that get better. They really do. The Frank Sinatra Christmas album. The Lena Hornman never gets old. The Ronettes ever, ever, never, ever get old. The Phil, Jennifer said it today as she says so many things that are so pithy. And by the way, Jennifer's here. I haven't even mentioned that my wife is here. Hi, Jennifer. Uh, she's only been on the show the last thousand episodes. But I got in front of a room full of people and my ego took off like Audrey Hepburn at a dance concert. All of a sudden, I'm the cutest girl in the room. Um, she said today, uh, uh, we were talking about, oh, what's playing? What is playing? Charlie Parker doing White Christmas. Now this one. You... In the background, you can hear people drinking and smoking. <laughs> That's what Christmas was like in the old days. Right? See, I have a hipper playlist than most people. We get to, we get to the heroin addicts at Christmas. It's a lot more illuminating. Um, Phil Spector made a Christmas album called Phil Spector's Christmas, and all the gang, uh, all of the Phil Spector groups, weigh in on it. And uh, Ronnie Spector, who is swirling in the heavens uh, um, with the Ronettes, made a bunch of groovy ones. And I said. You know, as my usual, Phil Spector is completely unsupportable. And Jennifer said the most pithy thing. Now that he's dead, we can all enjoy it again. And this is when you really, really want to hold back and be subtle. Oh, my God, someone's hurting that horse. That horse is near too much loud music. Gabriel, this one never gets old. So, Morocco is playing France tonight. Everyone who works at our hotel is Moroccan, so they're rooting for Morocco. I just finished doing Nightmare Before Christmas in London because I'm super swank. And like Audrey Hepburn, I sing in the show. No, no one asked for this. And uh, Danny Elfman wrote the movie Nightmare Before Christmas, and I'm so old that I was in it in 1993. Greg, I didn't know you are in it. I know. And I play four or five roles in it. And anyway, a few years ago, they resurrected it, and Danny asked me to be in it. And so we've done it all over the world since then, like in Tokyo and Dublin and Glasgow. Um, 
Glasgow is the best place to do any sort of musical thing because we do it with a full orchestra. And it was the Glasgow uh, National, it was the Scottish National Orchestra. We did it with three years ago before the plague. And um, our conductor's named John Mauchery. And John was a, a protege of Leonard Bernstein, who was a very famous composer and conductor in the United States for years and years with the New York Philharmonic. And he wrote a little show called West Side Fucking Story. <laughs> so, um, Leonard Bernstein was his, his mentor, and uh, John is a very much the uh, conductor, wonderful to work with. He has white hair, and he wears a tuxedo, and he has the baton and whatnot. And John speaks exactly like you would think a conductor would speak, a composer. And he's, see, this is what I'm saying. Within moments, you won't be able to hear me. Because once the match starts, and if France scores first, which is, I think, what's going to happen despite Gabriel's prognostication, um, uh, the, the noise is going to be tumultuous. And that we'll never, ever finish the show. And more than that, it's likely that we'll all be killed on the way home. So... <laughs> I would. I want to say goodbye to you now. I want to say Happy New Year to you now, and that I love you, and thank you for listening to the show, and that I'm sorry I didn't introduce Jennifer earlier. She's had as much creative input into the show as any human. Now that the cops are here, I don't know what to say. I just don't know. Okay, bye. Um, and so, where was I? It was not Morocco. Oh, John Malcheri. Uh, John will tell you stories, and he can do a hilarious Glaswegian accent because he spent eight years with the Scottish National Opera. And the, not only can he do a Scottish accent, the musicians of the Scottish um, National Orchestra also have very strong pronounced Glaswegian accident, accidents. And when we, when we played there three years ago, um, they don't call him John because they're from Glasgow, so they say, um, Joan! He, Joan. Uh, June, June, I have a question about the third master. <laughs> she went to Barcelona a bit more pizzacato. <laughs> or is it allegro non troppo? Uh, and John gives as good as he gets. But then John will tell you a funny story. And this is a conductor's idea of telling you a, a funny story. Um... <laughs> What was Leonard Bernstein like, Maestro? And you can call him Maestro, which is one of the great things about knowing someone who's a conductor who writes co music, classical music. They are a Maestro, and you can call them Maestro. And they don't go... <laughs> if you, in fact, if you don't call him Maestro. So, Maestro, what was Leonard Bernstein like? Well, the wonderful thing about Leonard Bernstein was he had such a marvelous sense of humor. <laughs> You're like, that one has a rip snorker, John. <laughs> so he's bloody marvelous. And um, I'm pitched up here where you're sitting at home right now or on, your, uh, on the tube or on the subway or on your bicycle or gardening. Or uh, There's one woman who used to ride a horse. She wrote us and said, you know what? I listen to your podcast when I ride my horse. And I was like... She'll be calling wild fire. That's for nobody. It's a song about a pony from the 70s. On a pony she named Wildfire. Then she died or did the pony die? Did the pony die? I think the pony dies in the song. It's not very Christmassy. But then there's so many Christmas stories.
like the little match girl. I always, what? Children in poverty dying is the point of the story? It's bad enough. Because I love Christmas Carol, and I watched them up at Christmas Carol on the plane on the way over because they didn't have anything good. And um, I love Michael Caine in it because Michael Caine is incapable of... He's a great comedian. He's a very funny actor. But in the Muppets movie, he made a decision early on in the process, is my guess. I'm going to play this straight. So the Muppets can do all the comedy, and I'm going to be this horrible, miserable, penurious, scary, ghastly monster through a Muppet movie, if you mind. So, oh, the workhouse is not in order! You're like, you could back up a little. If there's a guy dressed as a frog with someone's hand inside him. Uh, we were wondering, Mr. Scrooge, can we, might we have a little more coal? How do you like to be out of a job? Really? Really? You could back down a little on that. I just don't see anyone in Muppet Land putting the brakes on Michael Caine at any point during the movie. And then at the end, oh, thank you. Thank you, spirit. I will always keep Christmas in my heart. Um, it's really good. But, and I love Charles Dickens. Uh, I love any little Dickens, let's be honest. But he, he uh, he fakes you out with Christmas Carol because I watch it every year. I watch the Reginald Denny version. I watch the uh, um, the Alistair Crowley version. I watch the <laughs> Alistair Cook version. Uh, no, what's his name? Alistair. Alistair oh yeah, Alistair Sims says the best. His version is the best version. There's one with Patrick Stewart. There's one with George C. Scott. There's one from three years ago with Guy Pearce, which is a really strange reductive Christmas Carol, where Scrooge um uh uh. Uh, blackmails uh, 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 Cratchit's wife into having concupiscence uh, with him. Uh, and you're like, what? Where did this, where was this in the book? I don't remember this one when we were singing the songs and stuff. Uh, that one's really weird. Oh, and there's child labor in it. They really lay it on with the trowel in the Guy Pierce one. Plus, he's not too old. Like, it's Guy Pierce. He's like 50 and great looking. You're like, shouldn't Scrooge be kind of unattractive so we hate him? Instead of like, He's all right. <laughs> all right, he's grumpy. He's got more money than God, and he looks awesome. <laughs> You're fouling the plot up. So, Michael Caine. <laughs> Tell me, Tony Tim lives. <laughs> or what? You're going to kill him? What's happening here? I don't... <laughs> don't throw bloody holly at me. So, the, the ripoff of Christmas Carol is, um, I think it was like what George Orwell said about uh, um, in 1984. He said that the proletariat could throw off the party like a dog shaking off fleas. Well, now it's, uh, he wrote the book in 48. Now it's 2023 coming up. And the proletariat hasn't shaken off the party like a bunch of fleas yet. And... Um, uh, uh, kittens. Who wrote Clockwork Orange? Burgess. Anthony Burgess wrote a book called 1985. Get it? And it was it was his version of 1984, where he's like, Orwell got one thing wrong. We don't win. And it's like, we didn't win in the first version, Anthony. So in 1985, it takes place in London, 
and this will give you an idea of the awesome racism of England, even by someone as good as Anthony Burgess. The big thing is they're building an enormous mosque in the center of London, you see. And um, uh, cigarettes have um, desiccated lungs on the packages, which came to be. And uh, uh, the corporations run everything and they take your children from you and blah, 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 blah. And it's, a, uh, it's, it's one of his uh, dystopian books. And my, my fallacy is this, that uh, 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 Charles Dickens has a terrible character who's penurious and greedy and is awful to the poor and openly kicks at them on the street in several versions of the movie. People come up and go, can I have money? Or they sing a Christmas carol and he throws stuff at them. In the Muppet version, he absolutely kicks a small mouse puppet into the street. <laughs> Which is even crueler than kicking like a real mouse. The, signi the signifier of kicking a fake mouse into the street to indicate you detest the poor... Now we're doing Roland Bart's Christmas. Now, what if Christmas wasn't a holiday at all? Uh, but it was a construct. So, mm, the fallacy being that um, this rich person has a terrible night where they see all the terrible things that happen to them in their life. Not even the things they did so much, which is the part of the part of it. But your awful childhood with it was without love, and your the fact that you uh, chose money over um, uh, having a child and a family and and being in love with a woman and all that. Um, and then at the end of it, he's all sad and he changes immediately in the course of one evening and becomes a beneficent benefactor who kept Christmas better than any old, what was it, than anybody in this old town, in the old town and blah, blah, blah. And it's the best story ever. And it makes you think about your life and it's absolutely indispensable at Christmas time. And horribly, I just don't think it holds together. <laughs> I have never, ever in my short lifetime seen any rich person go, I've really been awful. <laughs> and what I'm going to do starting tomorrow morning with you, young boy, who I'm going to send for a turkey. I don't really see Elon Musk on Christmas 25th this year or Jeff Bezos going, look, I own Amazon. I literally have so much money, I could send everyone in the world a turkey tomorrow. You... Boy, at the Amazon counter, yes? Do you know the turkey, the one down in the shop? You mean the one that's on Amazon Fresh? The one as big as me? Yes, that's the one, boy. I want you to send, send, and send one to every human being in the world tomorrow. We'll open up all the post offices. But what about the parts of the world that don't believe in Christmas? Even them. Even the ones who spend money for the Ramadan masks and whatnot. Send them one, too. And it's not going to happen. Um, bill billionaires want to go into space, which means they're psychopaths um, because no one should want to go into space. It's just not that natural. He's tweeting stuff. When we take over Mars, we're not taking over Mars. I mean, I don't want to be like a bummer or whatever. <laughs> I didn't realize taking over Mars was so imperative. One, we don't want to take over Mars. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Mars needs women. It, there's a real serious crisis going on on Mars. They've been watching us for years through telescopes and they're about to take over. Oh, using what? A weird plague that's re blood red and expands and goes from person to person and kills everyone and all the trees turn red? Oh, no, that couldn't happen. Um, and then uh, uh, they, they, want to, um, they want to live forever. All billionaires have this eugenics thing going on. First of all, if you're into eugenics... You're a sociopathic Nazi. I'll add Nazi to the sociopathy. 
um, eugenics are absolutely, oh, oh, and the immortality, they're all going to live forever, they're going to have their head removed and put on a salamander or whatever so they can live in moisture or whatever their horrible plan is. But I just don't see them breaking down like Scrooge and giving away all their money. But what about Bill Gates? Um, Bill Gates is a maybe slightly lesser detestable billionaire. I'm not really into this whole, like, billionaires are okay. It's not really that big of an argument with me. Balzac never said it, but he should have. But Coppola said that he said it at the beginning of The Godfather, so that's okay with me. And that's behind every great um, fortune, a great crime. And there, there's no way around that. There is no way you are Jeff Bezos or who's the French cat who owns all the artwork, who destroyed all of the designer goods in the world and now we're fetting him because he's not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or the guy who invented the lure pack or whatever, or his family or, or Sam Walton and his crummy family with their Walmart and whatnot. There's no way that they did anything good at any point. And I don't want to hear, oh, they have a charity. Charities are there to keep the public from burning their stuff to the ground. That's what charities are. The reason charities even got started, and there never was one ever, by the way, every medieval king on their deathbed, the priest would come to give them the last rites, and the medieval king would go, I've been terrible. There's so many poor people, and you can hear them crying out for food, and we have that plague and whatnot, and that war that went on for a hundred years. Why didn't I stop it? And then I have no more taxes. And so the, on their deathbed, every medieval king rescinded taxes. You can read it. We're in Shakespeare and Company. It's in one of these books. <laughs> Probably Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror. And um, then uh, 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 the day after they died, the taxes, the, the counselors met and went, well, he wasn't serious about that. <laughs> So every billionaire, uh, uh, the, the first billionaire that had to was the, um, John J. Rockefeller. They were running a mining camp in Ludlow, Colorado, and the miners uh, were striking because they wanted um, food and to breathe while they worked. And just all this, un, you know, the same thing, same bullshit it's always been. People want to sleep, they want to eat, they want to have children, they don't want to die when they're 21. You know, what's the deal? I have a boat. I have a boat, and I named it after a thing that I like, and I'm going to Mars, haven't you heard? So, and I deliver groceries, but I don't know. Jeff Bezos said the other day, and I love this, it's really difficult giving away money. I, au contraire. It's quite easy. One great way to do it, and this is just a suggestion I'm casting out there for the holidays, is to meet, <coughs> excuse me, is to meet your quietus, which in other words means demise yourself. If you're so interested in immortality, one of the best ways to get it, proven again and again by great artists, is to not be here anymore. Because then everyone will be like, remember when Jeff Bezos died and he left us all his money? As we all sit on a pot of yogurt that's made of gold floating down the sand together, looking at not homeless people, but regular camps of people that have built prefabricated houses that were just flown in with the money that he left. That would be the way to really get people on your side. As for Elon Musk, I don't want you to even do that. I just want you to like dig a hole and go away. I want you to live with the other Morlocks down beneath the earth in 800,000 years' time, as H.G. Wells predicted, when humans are just the Eloy and you people running the furnaces down there bring us down with Rod Stewart and Yvette Mimieux. Then, at that moment, 
That's one. Or Guy Pierce, if you watch the other one. <laughs> With Jeremy Irons as the chief Morlock. Jeremy Irons, when Guy Pierce first finally gets down into Morlock world, all of the Morlocks are brutal and they just make humans work and then or they work at these giant furnaces and then they herd up all the Eloi, the humans, who all look to a person like Paris Hilton. Like orange skin, white hair, and they're like, That's hot and then oh, come over here and oh and then to the I'm now I'm being eaten. Um uh, uh, Jeremy Irons turns at the table and they've given him blue uh, stegosaurus fins down his back. And Guy Pierce walks into the room and does a take. <gasps> like a, a Carrie Ulway's take from the 80s. <laughs> My God, what's this? And uh, Jeremy Irons turns fantastically with his stegosaurus skills and goes, Do I surprise you? <laughs> One thing that I want when I visit the Morlocks is to be surprised. Please don't have this be another mundane Morlock visit where my tribe is being eaten one by one in the future. And then, oh, I knew this was coming. That you were controlling the world with furnaces and that you were blue. And speaking of blue, last Christmas I gave you my heart. This year. All right, we got to start this show. We have 13 minutes. 13 minutes to cover the entirety of the year. No, I've got one more show. In fact, let's not even start. Let's just talk about what great things I'm doing. <laughs> the Greg Proofs Film Club is on Sunday, Dece- Monday, December... Sunday? Monday. No, it's the day of the bloody finals, Jennifer. We scheduled the film club for 2 o'clock in the afternoon. However, in my, our defense... The finals start at 7 in the morning in Los Angeles or in beautiful Hollywood, California. Jennifer curates all the films in the film club and we're showing Billy Wilder's 1960 classic Best Picture in the Year. One of the few Best Pictures that's actually really worth being the Best Picture, The Apartment, which is a marvelous Christmas movie and is, in fact, two Christmas carols. What they've done is they've taken the plot of Christmas Carol. The rich people are are jerks in it but don't have an epiphany, which makes it truer. And the poor people who have to work really hard and sleep with other people and are unhappy because they live in New York and have to sleep with other people, finally get fall in love. So they have their journey from I don't have a soul and all I'm after is money because one of them's dating a married guy and the other one, am I ruining the plot of the movie? <laughs> in any case, it's really funny. And Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine are bloody marvelous in it. And even more than that, Fred McMurray, who, if you're an American film fan, if you were my age, you would know Fred McMurray from a terrible sitcom in the 60s called My Three Sons, where the most notable thing was the children were named Chip, Doug, and Ernie. And so forever, the the name Chip Douglas and Ernie Douglas have been used in fiction. There's a movie, The, the Cable Guy with Jim Carrey. He says his name's Chip Douglas. I mean, people just... if. If you're named Ernie in the United States and you were from that generation, it was ceaseless. <laughs> and their dog was named Lad, was it? And it was a big English uh, uh, sheepdog. And they go, and Fred McMurray talked like this. Oh, I'm the absent-minded professor. I've invented Flubber. Ooh. <laughs> like, yeah. So he's always a benign, nice guy, except in the two Billy Wilder movies he's in, where he's the most inconceivable heel that ever lived. Except he doesn't change his tone of voice, so it's awesome. It's like having Bing Crosby go, well, I'm going to have to kill you now using poison. (laughs) Well, I'm going to inject some poison into your body. (laughs) It's so out of character. Fred McMurray's awful to Shirley MacLaine in the apartment, and then fantastically in Double Indemnity, 
he uh, kills Barbara Stanwyck's husband so they can collect the insurance money. But he's Fred McMurray when he does it, so it's awesome. <laughs> he goes into her house and he's going to sell her insurance. And Barbara Stanwyck comes out of the shower in a bathrobe and no clothes, and you can tell. And she's wearing an anklet, and Fred McMurray looks up her robe and goes, that's a honey of an anklet. <laughs> yeah, it's dirty. The apartment's great. And one of the great uses of a, of a um, uh, uh, not using swear words, um, she goes, uh, Shirley MacLaine looks at herself in a broken mirror and goes, I'm all fouled up. And everybody in the theater, <laughs> it just proves you don't have to swear, like some unclever people. Gabriel. <laughs> then a proof cast, uh, the 29th in San Francisco at our beloved San Francisco at the Punchline. At 8 o'clock, that'll be a live one like this, and I promised to mention Jennifer earlier. Then I'll be doing stand-up. We're making another album on the 30th, the 31st. Uh, and then the first? I'm doing stand-up on the first? Who booked this shit? <laughs> Did I book this? Well, I'm going to be in San Francisco forever and ever. It's going to be great. And uh, uh, I'm with Mary... McBurg, I can't think of her last name, and Teresa Lee. Uh, I'm working with women this year because I only have women. Well, that's not true. I've got some men working with me later in the year, but I didn't pick it. In any case, uh, 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 there you are there. And then, um, and I won't be bringing Elon Musk on stage. I know that happened recently. <laughs> in San Francisco, they brought Elon Musk on stage, and uh, the crowd booed him. And, and um, his response to being booed was to yell at the crowd, I'm rich, bitch! And like, I mean, I'm... I'm I'm kind of experienced in comedy. And one thing I can assure you is that yelling that at a crowd when you're a billionaire never makes them think you're funny. Just a comedy tip. In case in case you're a billionaire, you're thinking of taking to the comedy stage, yelling at the audience how much money you have, pretty good way to lose them. And if you're a comedian, just another tip to my comedian friends, if you know billionaires, don't bring them on stage. Yeah, but you perform with Drew Carey. He's not a billionaire. He's a millionaire. Then on February 4th and 5th, I will be at the Crest Theater in uh, Sacramento on the 4th doing stand-up, and then on the 5th at uh, Fairfield, California, which means nothing to anyone in this room, but believe me, <laughs> if you knew the people of Fairfield, you'd know how important that is to them. Oh, we did Nightmare Before Christmas. I want to thank Danny. And uh, we had Phoebe Bridgers sing the part of Susie. Who's very, yeah, ooh, indeed. Uh, uh, and she sang um, Sally's song, which is very in character for her. The year before that, we had um, Billie Eilish sing it. So it's super in character for all of them. These are the, these are the depressed girls of now. Uh, uh, Billie's a little younger than Phoebe, but the, evidently, even though they're successful and good-looking and rich and stuff, they're sad, man. I mean, Sally, uh, Sally's song, was it? And the and that you have to sing in a quavery voice that you can barely get out because you can feel like a rabbit's running over your grave at all times. <laughs> Phoebe sang it like this. And will we ever end up together? No, I think not. <laughs> it killed. It really did kill. She's wonderful. She was really good. And Danny wrote the show, and I get to be in it, and with John Macherry, and so I was really excited about that. We're going to do it again next year, I think, in England. There's talk about other countries, you guys, but I'm not blowing anything out of the water on that one. I think I've plugged everything. Uh, and now we'll start the show. Um, 
Keith Levine uh, is, uh, if you know anything about uh, punk music and post-punk music, Keith Levine was in The Clash. Not only was he in The Clash, he kind of started The Clash with Mick Jones. And then um, uh, he started Public Image Limited after the Sex Pistols broke up with Johnny Lydon. Now, I know you're thinking, Greg, Grandfather, what was it like in the punk days? Well, first of all, we all didn't wear... Uh, safety pins in our noses and ears and have green um, uh, mohawks. That came later in the movies as a motif for the post-apocalyptic world. Every movie post the 80s, the apocalyptic world, people wear mohawks and leather jackets. First of all, leather jackets in your size are hard to come by then. Never mind when everyone's fighting over the last tin of food. You're not going to find one in your size and it's going to be decayed. And if you've ever owned a leather jacket, you know that you have to season it with grease and all these things. Uh, they don't stay good. They fall apart. And thirdly, if I'm spending zero time maintaining a mohawk in the post-apocalyptic world. I have other hair care needs then. I vote pirate. I've always voted pirate. I think it's funner. I want to wear a hat and a patch and stump around and whatnot, but everybody went post-apocalyptic. It's in every movie from Blade Runner to every movie ever. In any case, Keith Levine was a um, uh, uh, an extraordinarily inventive guitarist who I think a lot of other groups, including like The Cure and particularly um, U2's guitar player, The Strand, he, uh, I think, copied him a lot. Um, he also made The Metal Box uh, after he uh, left PIL, which is, as this uh, article in the New York Times put it, and I love rock writing, what did Frank Zappa say? Music by, written by people who can't write for people who can't read. Um, rock writing, the punk-inflected art-rock albums that followed were more challenging, particularly 1979's Metal Box. By the way, I've put my glasses at the end of my nose, but it doesn't help me read better. Um, he was um, something of an expressionist, I would say. Uh, certainly, I think uh, Ja Wobble and the other cats in the band thought him so. Johnny would... Uh, because he was a confounding figure, uh, and we're going to leave Johnny out of this for the moment because he's such a kind although, of... Although I love the, the quote that Keith Levine said that it was like with Neil and I, except they were both with Neil. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> they were both with Neil, meaning they were both high on the drugs. Um, Johnny's convulse, uh, confounding and now uh, completely un unsupportable politically. In any case, uh, uh, they made a lot of groovy music together. Johnny would pound on the piano, and rather than um, letting it uh, perplex him and, and infuriate him, Keith Levine would incorporate it into the recordings and whatnot. I'm going to play this jam here because it's the first greatest post-punk song, and it's by PIL, and it's called Public Image. And it's all about the guitar. And I'm going to get up and dance to it because... You have to see how you dance. Super boss. And then this one, which I love. 
that I bought for Jennifer when we were first going out because I knew she was a Keith Levine fan. And uh, it's on an EP. I don't even know if it's an album. It's called Looking for Something. Just so I could play you a lot of caterwauling and screaming. Absolutely awesome. Keith Levine is not just swirling in the heavens. He's conducting all the atoms uh, so that they may convene in a new and exciting way because he was that kind of artist. Really, really unstoppable. Um, Christine McVie is swirling in the heavens. And if you're... Whoa, there's Keith Levine again. Uh, If you're my age or even any age, you're certain to have heard every Fleetwood Mac song ever. Um, They've been a group since 1947. Uh, They started right after World War II. Uh, They were formed when um, they got the information that people in the southern part of the United States were unhappy and had created music called the blues. And uh, they started playing them blues. Uh, They were first a group in John Mayall's group, the Blues Breakers, and then uh, Mr. McVie and Mr. uh, Fleetwood started a group called Fleetwood Mac where they used their two names to great effect. And Christy McVie joined the group, uh, I think in the early 70s, late 60s. She'd had her own band. And her name before uh, she married John McVie and took his name McVie was fantastically Christine Perfect. And why you would change your name from Christine Perfect to anything else ever. If my name was Greg Perfect, I wouldn't even be here. I would just be standing next to the sand waiting for the match to be over for everyone to come running to me. Um... I don't know if there's an, a way to explain what Fleetwood Mac happened. They were, they were a blues band. They had hits in the 60s here. They had a series of different exciting singer-songwriters uh, go through their band, and Peter Green and whatnot, and uh, Spencer Dryden, what the hell was the other one's name, and then uh, Bob Walsh and ever, and then they got uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks to be in their band, and um, what happened was, and Gabriel, you're going to need to cover yours for this part. Uh, they took a lot of drugs. And uh, out of those drugs, they made a couple of records. And uh, they went from being, let me put it this way. I was in high school for all of this. I experienced it firsthand. I wasn't in the group Fleetwood Mac. But if you went to high school in the 70s in the United States, in essence, you were an ad hoc member of Fleetwood Mac. Because you never stopped hearing their songs till the end of time. First, there was the bicentennial year, which is a year that we celebrate in America when everyone um, becomes more sexually ambiguous. Every 200 years, we have a bicentennial. And uh, so that year, it was Peter Frampton. And uh, he had uh, many songs. Uh, He had been a kind of a rock star, but not a huge rock star. And then he made an album in San Francisco, of all places, called Frampton Comes Alive, um, where he was... uh, summarily resurrected from an untimely demise and brought back onto the stage to play all of his hits that weren't hits from Frampton's Camel, which suddenly became the biggest hits in the entirety of the universe, including a song that went, Do You Feel Like We Do, that was 20 minutes long. 
Then the next year, Fleetwood Mac, out of a, an insane haze of alcohol, hatred, and cocaine, made an album called After tw- Being a Group for 20 Years at this point, or 15 Years, Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> they named their album Fleetwood Mac after themselves. Thank you, Gabriel. And um, thank you. Uh, they, they had some giant hits with it. And uh, this one, then they made an album after that, subsequent to that, where they all broke up with one another. There was two couples in the band. And uh, that album resulted in an album called Rumors, which they wrote about themselves. Uh, and fantastically... Christine wrote almost every bloody song. Uh, Dreams, I think, is the only number one Fleetwood Mac hit of all time. That's the Stevie Nicken one where she goes, um, It's terrible, but unbelievably accurate. She is a raspy little hobbit. She's undeniably talented, and she's probably the biggest rock star of the whole group, Stevie. She's going on tour with Billy Joel, which everyone's like, what? When did they combine forces? Next thing, Steely Dan's going to come along, we'll have the entirety of the 70s covered. Um, uh, what was it? Steely Dan? I mean, uh, Stevie Nicks. And I saw my reflection. Anyway, uh, Christine had the gift, and the gift was she could sleep all night and then wake up and write a song. And here's one that she wrote that not only was it unstoppable in the 70s, but Bill Clinton was a real... Everything in Jennifer and I's show, as you know, goes back to um, how great it is to be in the Democratic Party. And that uh, every other president that wasn't a Democrat was a racist sociopath. And so... The whole of the 80s, um, we had a, a homophobic racist sociopath named Ronald Reagan, who was followed by an even wimpier racist sociopath named Herbert Walker, whose uh, son, Akhenaten, became an unbelievable racist homophobic sociopath for eight years in the 2000s. It was broken up by Bill Clinton, who had this song sung at his inaugural by Christine McVie. At his inaugural dance, him and Hillary danced to it, and he asked Fleetwood Mac to do it. Mind you, they're the here they are. So it was a very big night because, as I said to Jennifer. All their songs are about breaking up. And Jennifer said, has there been a group that's broken up more? They, they broke up a thousand times. They added a thousand different members. There was a show here in the uh, late 90s called Rock Family Trees. It was in England. And it would go through the origin of a group and then every branch of the group that ha- went from like Led Zeppelin and whatnot. Fleetwood Max already by the 90s was looked like a sea creature from the bottom of the Marianas Trench. It was, it, it was translucent, it was effervescent, it would lit itself up, and it had a thousand branches, like a nudibranch. It was amazing. So at this point, they had broken up for several years and then came back because Clinton asked them to.
don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And then um, they broke up for, at one point, Christine left the band, I'm not kidding, for 18 years. Now, how do you leave something for 18 years? And by the way, still in the band. Now she was at, lately. And then, uh, in any case, uh, she's an, an astonishing songwriter. This album was fueled by hatred and screaming. She said at one point, all they said to each other when they were in the studio for months at a time was, it's any flat, mate. <laughs> that was it. There wasn't a lot of communicating going on. And then everybody played the bloody song. And then this is one they made uh, on this recording session, which was, again, because everything's from the Bay Area, recorded in Sausalito under an enormous pile of cocaine. And Stevie and Christine moved to a condo by themselves and held it together. And the three men of Fleetwood Mac moved into a condo by themselves and absolutely did not hold it together <laughs> for over a year of making a pop record. Which, by the way, you hear this gentle, groovy music. That was what they were doing while they were making this gentle, groovy music. And so Christine, because she's the best songwriter and probably the best singer... Uh, as well. And as Jennifer said to me last week, how can you be in a group as famous and enduring as Fleetwood Mac and still be underrated? She's that good. They took her to um, Berkeley Community Theater. They put a bottle of champagne on a piano. They had everyone split and they put a microphone out and they recorded this song live all day with Christine singing it by herself. No one else in Fleetwood Mac is on this record. Christine McVeigh is conducting a seminar in the heavens on how to lilt everyone into a state of absolute reverie, an irreplaceable singer-songwriter. Um, we've had a lot of good times happen in America in the last few weeks. I, I'm not lording it over England or anything. I, I feel awful for England because it's our adopted homeland and England was so very kind to us. And, and continues to be. Um, however, we had a midterm election that I had a lot of English friends uh, um, show a great deal of concern, like, oh my God, we think the Nazis are going to win again and whatnot. 
and then we didn't let them win, and we took back the Senate, and then the last man to win the Senate was a reverend and a minister from Georgia who's had to win because of the restrictive voting laws and the weird um, playoffs that they have in Georgia, runoffs rather, for the elections. He's won five elections, is it? He's had to win five elections to be senator for six years. The fact that he's black and a minister wouldn't have anything to do with that. Put that out of your mind this instant. Because America, you may have seen um, Land of the Free, Home of the Braves. And by Braves, I mean the Atlanta Braves baseball team, <laughs> who are named after an American Indian team in a very offensive way. And that's why we are the Land of the Braves. Because what we're going to do is come at you super offensively and then hang around for a while. Uh, we're rich, bitch. I don't know if anyone said it. I don't know if anyone said it lately. As Scott Capurro used to say in the 90s, what was it? Gotta go. We got a world to run. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, uh, Reverend Warnock won an exciting runoff against it. One of the most cynical candidates ever run by the Republicans. The Republicans aren't a party anymore. And I'm just going to say this ever so briefly because I don't want to be Ebenezer Scrooge for the whole bloody show. But um, I have no truck anymore. I haven't for, you know, a good deal of time since, oh, I don't know, I was 20. But um, especially in the last six years when everybody's had to weigh in on the whole um, Trump really, uh, Orange 45, oh my God, he changed the way the Republican Party was. Before that, they were so polite, they gave you a drink before they had violent sex with your life um, uh, without your permission. They were so nice before, they always sent a scented invitation before they destroyed a village full of starving children. They were so nice before, and then he just made them so mean. Um, they were always horrible. They have been since day jump. But Republicans freed the slaves. That was Abraham Lincoln, and it was 150 years ago. Crack a fucking book. If I have to explain one more time how the parties change positions, I'm going to eat someone. Hopefully Audrey Hepburn. So, because um, I understand she tastes like marzipan. Uh, they have nothing to give. They're not a party anymore. They haven't been in ages. Um uh, 45, Orange 45 was just the, the, the culmination and apotheosis of a zillion years of hatred and pain. Their absolute racism, their inability to collect anyone new in the party. If you think collecting ugly, icky white people that are by the wayside angry is some sort of big strategy for the future, it's sort of like diminishing returns. They told everyone in their party COVID didn't exist. Now, for the last year and a half in America, almost everyone who dies from COVID is a Trump voter. So I, I don't really see that as a burgeoning model for success. <laughs> and on top of that, um, they have no plans. They've taken over the Congress again. I think they have a four or five seat majority. They're not even going to elect their crappy majority leader back into uh, Kevin McCarthy. Won't be speaker, I don't think. Because they don't want to do anything. They want to have pretend stuff. They want to investigate Hunter Biden. They want to investigate Nancy Pelosi. They want to make up stuff that happened rather than ever deal with anything that's really happening. What are you getting at, Craig? It's this. Their absolute lack of humanity. There's no focus to them whatsoever. They're not there to function as a, as a party anymore. They're there for what we call in the, uh, in the media business comms. In other words, in order to maintain the headline and keep the news cycle about you every second... 
it was necessary for 45 to uh, jail a baby every day and commit a heinous crime that was worth in Watergate every 30 minutes, meaning stealing money, whatever, taking money from the Saudis, doing all the awful things he did, letting everyone in Puerto Rico die, being impeached twice, threatening the Ukraine, all those things he did, which he did, by the way, every single day of his presidency. There wasn't a day when he took the day off and went, you know, while I'm golfing, nothing bad's going to happen. <laughs> Because we found out this week, one, that he wanted to suspend the Constitution, and two, that he had 30-something congresspeople writing his chief of staff after January 6th, urging him to invoke, and I'm not kidding, martial law spelled like Marshall Dillon. <laughs> not martial in the sense of the Roman poet martial, or even the active verb martial meaning military, but martial as in Marshall Dillon from Gunsmoke Marshall. Hey, Marshall, there's a bad guy in town. Well, there's a new Marshall. Uh, and that they've been all urging him to do that. They have no point in society, is my point anymore. I'm not supporting them. I don't think they're cute and funny. I don't want to hear from them. I don't want to hear their opinions on stuff because they don't have any opinions on stuff. Aren't you reducing their humanity to nothing? What about all my relatives? Well, listen, I've already included all of my fucking cousins in this discussion, okay, you guys? If you live in America, it's impossible that there aren't Trumpkins in your family. It's just impossible. There is no way to convince them of reality because they've chosen this other alternate reality that they cling to so desperately. As Barack Obama so succinctly stated, their God and their guns. They support gun violence and they endorse the idea of children being killed by guns in mass executions by white psychopaths who've been deprogrammed by the system and fed a consistent plate of lies and insane conspiracy theories so that they finally snap and avail themselves of the all-too-easily-obtained automatic weapons so that they can shoot up a room full of kids. Why do they do this, Greg? Because it makes them feel good. I wish there was another reason that I was going to give you some big overarching political fucking thought drenched in wisdom here, but there isn't anymore. They're not there. That's not where they are. They're angry about everything because they've been taught to be angry about everything. Is it even their fault that they're this way? They've been exposed to a lot of lies, but then I was exposed to a lot of lies. If you knew my parents, you'd be like, Greg, how are you able to talk in society? You'd say, Greg, why aren't you inside a cage with people poking a stick at you and throwing like bonbons at you? Because my father was one of the great moral failures of the 20th century. He wasn't tried at The Hague, but as I've said before on the show, he could have been just for his cooking. <laughs> my father did things to a lamb chop that would have you reporting him to, to PETA. He would just burn it. And then when you go, you're burning it, he'd be like, what? <laughs> and that's what the Republican Party is. They are my father, in essence. That's why I was so triggered by Orange 45. The denial, the abuse, the screaming, the lying. Anytime you go, all you did was just cheat me and take my money and act like an asshole and commit sexual assault, they go, shut up and fuck you. And that's their big answer to everything. You did. You did. You made me do it. You made me fuck you and you made me sexually assault you and you made me ruin the world and steal your money. You made me do it because you made me feel bad. And that's their platform. Um, so do I have sympathy for them as humans? At a very basic level, yes. Um, as a political party, not at all. And as for the press, way not at all. 
we've, I've, we, I, we might have discussed it on the show, but I'm going to carry on discussing it ever so briefly, and then we're going to push off into this good night. Um, I don't believe the whole... I believe that the press is owned by right-wing maniacs, and, and Rupert Murdoch, whoever you want to say, uh, 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 Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post that I'm reading here. And uh, 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 it's impossible to escape the fact that the media around the world is run by icky, ugly white guys who sexually assault their maids. That's what history is. Um, however, having said that, that's not the only reason why all media outlets cover right-wingers like they're delicate butterflies that have been found on an Amazonian expedition in the 1870s and have been brought home carefully and pinned to a wax thing for our delectation at the British Museum with a long speech about them. Oh, my God. Their racism is so carefully constructed. How did they ever think of it? Oh, my God. Brexit was such an enormously clever plan. How did we think to let the Dyson guy move out of the country and then have no money or medicine for poor people for the foreseeable future or government that works at all? So the, the idea that the press keeps saying that like there's something going on other than insane base non-entity um, isn't a matter of, oh my God, they're being told to anymore. Of course they're being told to. We're all being told to be corporate, you know, whores. They're, a lot of the people in the press are doing it because they like to. They're, I'll be a dick. They're, are you impugning all journalists? No. There's a few that have a shred of integrity now and again. Uh, having said that, if you want to pay me monies to celebrate M&Ms on TV, I'm available <laughs> at extraordinarily popular prices. I will, in fact, insert them into my body for a very nominal fee on a pay-per-view special, should you ask me to. I'm not above being bought and for less than the price of a salted peanut. But we've got to get off the whole thing about, oh my God, the press is under duress. They are in a lot of ways, and then a lot of them really don't care whether there's democracy or not. Why don't they care? Ever so briefly, I'll sum it up for you. Because they won't have a job if it's gone, or, or I mean, they won't have a job if they don't have a story to sell. And keeping democracy alive, that fragile, weird thing that we created, um that society created and that has sort of spread about to a third of the globe over the last 70 years. This weird thing, not the democracy the Greeks had. That democracy was democracy that Tories and Republicans would have worshipped because it meant you had slaves and when you fought another country, you just sold everybody that you captured, especially the children. That was what you did with them. And then you wrote a great book about how awesome you were, like Caesar. You wrote the Annals of Gaul, which we still read like it's news and shit. He had two scribes following him on horses, and he dictated as they went from village to village, right where we are, where the Parisi built the fucking first settlement just across the bridge from where I'm sitting. Caesar had two scribes sitting behind him, and he was like, oh, the Averginny, so difficult. And yet I managed it. Sure, we had to kick a couple of asses. There was a bloody nose here and there. But at the end of the day, everyone speaks Roman. Am I wrong or am I wrong? Drive down the boulevard here in Paris and see how many uh, uh, affectations to Rome there are, including an enormous triumphal arch that everyone still goes to and has a great time. It's based on the triumphal arch that's in Rome, which Jennifer and I have been to 
which celebrates the defeat of the Jews and has poor Jews marching with menorahs in their hands with Romans sticking spears in them. Everyone's face is gone. You should see yourselves right now. We drove past Lache de Triomphe yesterday, and of course it's a bunch of French people stomping the Russians and stomping the Spanish into the ground. I wonder the Spanish and Italians look at it and go, memories. <laughs> there are lions everywhere here. America and Russia and Germany um, chose eagles, and France chose cocks. <laughs> And England and them chose lions. And then Scotland, was it the unicorn? Or is that Wales? One of them chose the unicorn. Scotland is a unicorn. So Scotland, like what it is, a pathetic pseudo-nation that doesn't exist, chose a pathetic pseudo-thing. No, I'm kidding. I love Scotland. I love Scotland more than anything. My biggest regret is that they didn't devolve five years ago when they had the chance. They had a chance to cut and run before Brexit. And it was this bloody close. It really was. We were there when it was happening, and I was just like, come on, Scotland. Mostly because I wanted to see this, because I've played all over uh, the, in the dinky, dirty island so much. I really, really wanted to be on a train and get to the station at Waverley. Or, or even sooner than that, fantastically, uh, where the borders end, like Darlington, and have a bunch of fucking jock conductors come on the train with their new Scottish EU uniforms, right? Like right from Brussels and be like, oh, what's your identity? And then I go like that, no, are you a yank? Oh, my cousin lives in uh, San Francisco, great, great. And then you, where are you from? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't have my papers. You bloody wee Sassanak. Into the cage! <clears throat> I wanted to see English people marched off the fucking trains and put into cages in Scotland because they didn't have their ID. No more of this, uh, you just breeze in to Aberdeen without so much as a fucking by your leave. But they can still do it. They can still pull it off. And Nick Sturgeon's the one to do it. That's what I love about Scotland, that dichotomy. Uh, the women uh, uh, the women of Edinburgh are absolutely terrifying. <laughs> They're always writing stories about <clears throat> Robert the fucking Bruce and William Wallace and shit like that. No one ever talks about like Robert the Bruce's wife and shit. <laughs> who had to wash the blue out of the fucking tunic or whatever. There were no kilts then. That's made up. If you've ever been chased down the street by a gang of 14-year-old shit-faced Scottish girls, then you'll know what I'm talking about. They're all wearing boots. They're wearing no clothes at all. It's freezing out. It's freezing. They're all smoking. They're all pregnant. And they're... Uh, they'll throw a tin of executive lager at your fucking forehead and then stomp on your eye. And then they'll go get on the night bus and laugh. Could he get a night coach down to Speyside? Then they get a deep fried monster. 
the deep uh, my old I used to do a joke when I toured here in the 90s when I say here of course I mean England when I'm away from LA I mean here is LA uh, and it was uh, the Brits just the Scots just stood on one side of Hadrian's or the Romans stood on one side of Hadrian's wall Flavius don't look he's deep frying one of our pizzas <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm. I've had it. I don't really want to hear about the press anymore when they go like, uh, "The new prime minister has really bold plan for this winter. <laughs> Children are dying at the average of ten a minute, but the toys have really come up with some great plans for this winter." <laughs> You know, an all-week Christmas strike of every service in England is going to make the people of Britain so much stronger. Thank God there's no Portuguese people here with their sausages. Uh, and in America, it's the same thing. Oh, my God, Republicans. Yesterday, they screamed. How did they think of it? I mean, they got up and they... Also, I don't know if you've seen some of the Republicans in Congress... The Freedom Caucus had a party yesterday, I swear to you. We have a part of Congress that's ugly white people called the Freedom Caucus. By freedom, of course, it's absolutely Orwellian. Freedom meaning slavery, the Slavery Caucus. Who's slavery? Everyone else's but them. That's the Slavery Caucus. And Louis Gohmert, who I think, and this is a real reach, is the stupidest person in the American Congress. There's Mo Brooks, uh, there's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's Lauren Babert, there's Matt Gates, but Louis Gohmert has something wrong with his teeth that he hasn't had fixed. Paul Gozar, he's also a moron. But I'm a moron, I'm not. I'm impugning morons. His IQ is like a dish of chilled Lysol. There is no sentience to him. He's never made sense. He doesn't know anything. He's just racist. He's just a ball of racist. And he had the guitar out last, yesterday and was singing, was it O Holy Night or Little Town of Bethlehem or something? As only white people can do when they're at their most repulsive. <laughs> Sometimes white people are fun. Like, you're like, oh, God, look, Debbie Harry or whatnot. Or, oh, look, Bowie, he, you know, he, he's pretending to um, blow Mick Ronson. This, this part's good. You know, white people sometimes reach up and, like, make it happen. Okay, those are the only two times. But it's enough. Bruce Springsteen plays for four hours. You should complain. <laughs> After the 14th reference to New Jersey, you should stop the show. But I like it. He plays a long time. I know you do. That's why we do this show. I try to teach. I try to teach. I like him. I know. We had a sting scare all through the 80s where white people go, I like sting. What, what, do you hear what you're saying? Let me put it this way. Do you get how you're coming across? Never mind your own shitty taste. That's personal. I mean, like, if you meet other people in mixed company and shit, you know, like, maybe they're playing something groovy, some Bruno Mars or Beyonce or something that's beyond your reckoning, and then you're the one who pipes up and goes, hmm, I fucking like Michael Bublé Christmas. Do you really want to be that person? See? Fucking cops came. They just heard the words Bublé. It's an abomination in France. Bublé means devil in French. To conclude tonight's lecture, so how can we change things, Greg? You can give money. Uh, I'm going to uh, list a bunch of charities and I'm going to... Uh, uh, 
put them on the website. Some of them are going to be the Maui Food Bank. We just played Maui. We had a wonderful time in Hawaii, and it was brilliant. But Hawaii is so much like America or any other place. In fact, you might say Hawaii is part of America. (laughs) Technically. As I've always called it, Alabama with volcanoes. And the reason is, it's extraordinarily wealthy, and you go there and you're a rich white person, a holly, as they say, and you come from the um, the, the uh, mainland, and then you get to Hawaii, and the poverty is extraordinary. And uh, this is on purpose, of course. Hawaiians um, were a kingdom, and we had to put them down. They were, the, in fact, I believe the only part of the American protectorate that had their own king, which is fairly awesome when you think about it, that there was a king of Hawaii and a queen of Hawaii. And now all they want to do is sweeten bread. In any case, uh, we'll uh, we'll be talking about the Maui Food Bank and a lot of other different charities. But to uh, finish off, and we'll be doing that show New Year's Eve, we'll talk much, much more about everyone um, that passed away this year because she's just so recently passed away and uh, swirled off into the heavens and because she was so important. And I think everyone in this room will know um, of her importance. Uh, the singer, songwriter, and actress Irene Cara um, has left us far too soon. Some people are, are gone and, and they've been here forever and you're like, what a life well lived. With Irene Cara, I think she gave the full measure uh, of what she could um, while she was here. Irene Cara um, was from a Puerto Rican Cuban family in New York. And there really wasn't a lot in the early 80s, and there still isn't, a lot of Latin stars that were singer-songwriters and also stars. She was a teenage star, and um, she was in a movie called Sparkle, which was kind of a a fictionalization of the Supremes story. And um, she made another album called Out Here on My Own. She was also a television star, and then she was in a picture called Fame. And her character, Coco Hernandez, which is such a fantastic movie character name, uh, was supposed to be a dancer. But Irene Cara was such an extraordinary singer and songwriter that they changed the character for her. Believe me, every Latin performer in the United States, um, from John Leguizamo to J-Lo to Shakira to whomever, um, really, really knows who Irene Cara is. She's an extraordinary talent. She also had the distinction of having two songs nominated for an Oscar and singing at the Oscar program twice and winning an Oscar for Best Song. So first we'll play this one because it's so boss. And um, you'll know it in a minute when I... Yeah. Remember, it's the early 80s. So there's a lot of synthesizers and an awesome Giorgio Moroder German techno sound. And a really long intro. (laughs) Uh, I'll just add one more thing. Uh, Having a Latin girl sing about how famous she wanted to be and dominate the world was also kind of new.
You will remember her name. Um, she was on her way to being a gigantic... She was a gigantic superstar for that period in the early 80s. And then she had a deal with a record company and decided, because they weren't paying her, to actually sue the record company um, and try to get her money, which she eventually did. But because she was a, a Latin woman... Um, they stalled ass on her career in a good deal of many ways. It can absolutely be said that Irene Cara um, had an amazing career, but could have had an even more amazing career. But the awesome part of Irene Cara is that her songs never stop and that she did make um, an incredible splash and that basically everything she touched has become a franchise. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say to you that I wish you a Merry Christmas, that I want to thank everyone here at Shakespeare and Company. Um, uh, for pu uh, for putting us on here in Paris and for letting us do it because we haven't been back in a long time. Everyone in England for letting us visit them. We'll be back again uh, next year um, in England and Paris. And then, of course, all around the country, I forgot to mention Whose Line, but Whose Live, Whose Line is taping again next year. We're in our 725th great season on television. <laughs> um, I started the show when the earth was cooling. <laughs> And uh, Pangea had just separated from Gunwanderland and whatnot. And we had to walk from continent to continent. And that's why there's no Tasmanian devils on the show. They're trapped in one part <laughs> where they couldn't cross over to do the show with us. We're actually taping another season of Who's Line Is It Anyway on the CW. And Who's Live Anyway will be on the road again as of February. And uh, we'll be in the Bay Area and San Jose and whatnot. And then later at Davis Hall in San Francisco. Next year, we're playing New York. Next year, we're playing Chicago. We're going to try like the devil to get back out to Hawaii again. Uh, having said all that, um, I want to wish everyone a very groovy holiday. And I, I want to leave you uh, with the inspiration of Irene Cara, who I think is a model for all of us with her persistence, beauty, and awesomeness. I saw this movie at the Royal Theater on Polk Street in 1982. And I went home and I cut the top off of my sweatshirt. <laughs> I wish you nothing but love. May every page you turn be a patchy page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're bearer bonds. Irene Cara loves you.